All right, well, <clears throat> we've been on a journey this fall together through First Peter. I've enjoyed conversations I've gotten to have with many of you along the way in the hallways, over meals, life groups, um, about what God's been doing in your hearts through this letter, First Peter. Today we get to bring it to a close. We'll do so by taking a look at the final verses and then uh, by zooming out and looking back on the letter as a whole. So please join me in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now, let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. A few weeks ago, both of our little boys were due for shots. And um, so, as you know, a two-month-old and a two-year-old, no matter how much you try to tell them that this pain you're about to experience is for your good, they can't really understand it, right? So, so I find myself there in the doctor's office, and I'm just, one at a time, have my boys in just a grip, just to try to restrain them as somebody's sticking a needle into their leg that's I know is for their good but that they don't understand and the best I can hope for in that moment is that there's some sort of impression coming through through my face through the words that I'm saying to them that maybe something like daddy's holding me daddy thinks this is good for me and that somehow one of those impressions would maybe somehow ease the pain, bring some comfort in the midst of a painful situation. I think what we've been seeing in this letter is that Peter has been presenting all the suffering that we experience as Christians as something like that. In other words, when we experience pain, what's happening is that there's a God who actually, in his case, is infinitely good and wise and powerful who has us in his arms as he's allowing pain to be introduced into our lives for purposes that we can't always understand. And despite the fact that we can't understand it, just like a little kid can't understand why he or she is getting a shot, God says, even though you don't understand it, I want you to trust me. We get one final section of this letter today to guide us through the suffering that's inevitable in this time of what we've been calling exile, because Peter calls it exile, during a time when we find ourselves living in a place that is not truly our home. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. You want a Bible or Bible app open to follow along here? We're going to look at verses 6 through 11, actually, right now. There's three sections to this text. Um, Two sets of instructions, and then a part about uh, it's encouraging it's an encouragement section so two sets of instructions a series of encouragement and they're all tied together by this theme of suffering that arguably has been the most predominant theme in the letter and so at the end of each of these three we'll just circle it back tie it back into our idea uh, about suffering the theme of suffering first the instruction to humble ourselves let's take a look at verses six and seven Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because 
He cares for you. It's not natural to humble ourselves. Actually, what's most natural in, in the doctor's office on the table when you're getting a shot is to push back, to kick, to writhe, to resist, right? And there's some corollary to that, I think, in our own suffering as we cry out to God and say, God, why me? I don't deserve to go through this, right? As most of us do. Yet, here we have it, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Some of Peter's readers probably would have picked up on the subtle hint there when he uses that language of the mighty hand of God that this is actually the same mighty hand that brought God's people out of slavery in Egypt. It's the same mighty hand that brought God's people back from the historic exile during the Old Testament period when they were in Babylon. And now that same mighty hand is in some sense behind our suffering or should we say over us as we are suffering. So what would it take for us to be the sort of people who instead of tensing up under the mighty hand of God in the time of suffering, the sort of people who find a way to relax our pain-averse muscles, so to speak, in utter and complete trust in the God who's holding us in our pain? How, how, could, how could that be? How could we do it? Well, maybe it would be easier if we believed, truly believed, the second half of verse 6, that God's got a time in mind in which he's going to exalt us. More on that when we get to verse 10, but that's one how. Another how is in verse 7, as it talks about casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. In other words, throwing those anxieties his way instead of trying to manage them ourselves. So we've got a main command here in verses 6 and 7 to humble ourselves. We've got a secondary instruction here to cast our anxieties on him. And I'm wondering, how are the two connected? How is humility connected to anxiety? It wasn't immediately clear to me at first, but on further reflection, um, I realized that when we're trying to manage our anxieties without God, it's actually the opposite of humility. Right? Another way of saying that would be that worry is a disguised form of pride because it's saying to God, actually, I can handle this better myself than you could. But what's in fact true is that the God whose hand we find ourselves in during a time of suffering, that God cares for us deeply. And our Lord Jesus knew that which is why he is our ultimate example of entrusting one's suffering to God and humbling himself under the mighty hand of the Father whom he trusted deeply, cared for him. Jesus not only trusted deeply that the Father cared for him, though he, he trusted deeply that God was in control of his suffering. And that's been a main theme throughout this letter, that God is in control of our suffering. Peter has used words like we've been called to suffering. He's been used, used words like our suffering, when our suffering is in line with God's will, as if God sometimes wills us to suffer. My question here as we conclude this series is do we believe that yet? That God's sovereign over everything that's introduced into our lives, that, that he's in control, completely control, in control of our sufferings? Do we believe it yet? Another way of asking that would be which sort of children are we? are we? Are we the sort of children who, on the doctor's table, getting that shot, uh, are, are the ones writhing around? Or are, the ones who are, are we the ones who are finding a way to 
relax in our hearts under the mighty hand of the God that we trust in. So that's instruction one, humble yourselves. Number two is resist the devil. Let's take a look at that in verses eight and nine. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This right here, uh, it looks like a rock at the bottom of the sea. It's actually, anybody know what that is? It's called a stonefish. Yeah, somebody knew that. Um, most poisonous fish in the whole world, you know that? Um, there it is. And, you know, it just, it, it doesn't want you to see it there. Because it does its best work when it's not seen. And an unsuspecting fish comes by and here's what happens. Boom. Just like that. Blended into the seabed and then in a moment it comes up. It does its best work when the fish don't know it exists. It's the same with the devil. He does his best work when we're not aware or thinking about his existence. He doesn't want us to be aware of his schemes. He wants to destroy us before we ever realize that he was around. Let me back up for a second, though, and just acknowledge what I'm saying here is that, <clears throat> that we Christians believe, actually, despite the best efforts of post-enlightenment thought in the West for the last several hundred years, that there's a real devil. He's not, not a guy in a, in a red suit with a pitchfork, but somebody whose schemes are actually much more dangerous than that. Uh, look, at, look at what these verses tell us about him, verses 8 and 9. It says in verse 8 that he's our adversary. In other words, whatever enemies we think we have in our lives right now, whatever, uh, whoever cable news is trying to convince us our enemy is right now, whoever your Facebook algorithms are trying to convince you is your enemy today, we have a real enemy. Here he is, the devil. Um, what's he doing? He's, according to verse 8, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know from other scripture texts that the main tools he has at his disposal are deception and accusation. Deception, he's called in 2 Corinthians 11, that it says that he masquerades as an angel of light. He tries to make evil seem good and tries to deceive us in that way. But then, when we give in to evil, when we find evil to be attractive and give in to it, he turns into our accuser. And he becomes that voice in our heads or that voice before God even saying, that one doesn't belong in God's family. You don't, you don't have a place in God's family anymore. You, you don't belong to God. Look at what you just did. Deception, accusation, two of the main tools that he uses to try to devour. And he has devoured many using those two tactics. He even had the audacity to try to devour our Lord Jesus with deception in the wilderness. So we can be certain that he will try to devour each and every one of us here. And in a moment like ours here in 2019, which is very similar, we've been making the case to the moment that Peter's readers were in, in their own day, a moment at which the Christian faith is waning in popularity and public opinion. What the devil often will try to do is to terrify us 
until he can deceive us into sin. He'll, he'll just be that voice saying, you know what, <clears throat> it wouldn't hurt that much just to compromise just a little bit with sin. Especially, especially when just a little compromise would help you avoid some suffering in this life. Surely God will understand just a little bit of compromise into sin. And he starts to convince us of that and make compromise with sin seem attractive. But then, as we know, he's never satisfied with just a little bit of compromise, is he? Once he has that little bit, he wants to take more and more and more. In the face of such an adversary, what do we do? Well, I think we're told here in verses 8 and 9, we're given several instructions. Be sober-minded and watchful. That means expect him to be whispering in our ears. Be alert to that voice that deceives and accuses. It also says in verse 9, resist him. And think about that for a moment. Think about how in the New Testament, when we're faced with situations in which we've got internal temptations welling up within us, we're often told to flee from that situation, literally run away from it. Yet, in a passage like this one, when we find ourselves face-to-face with the devil himself, we're not told to flee. We're told to stand firm and resist him. How can that be? I think part of the answer to that is that those of us who are in Christ have no need to fear the devil and his schemes anymore because the one who is in us is greater than the devil. The one who's in us has given us his own power to defeat the devil and his schemes. But what about when the devil's schemes seem too much? When it seems like we're going to be overwhelmed by them? What then? I wonder if that's when the second half of verse 9 becomes especially dear to us. The comfort in knowing that we're not alone. That the same kinds of suffering, it says, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Lindsay prayed for that earlier in this service and we can turn on the news and see it our sisters and brothers suffering unthinkable things around the world and we are not alone second instruction resist the devil how does that fit though into the bigger theme of suffering that peter's been pulling together throughout this letter and in this particular passage i think maybe the connection is this that the devil aims to exploit our suffering He's not the author of it in an ultimate sense. He's not sovereign over it. He's not in control of whether you suffer or not, ultimately. But when God allows suffering into your life and mine, the devil sees that as the opportunity for him to jump in and exploit and turn us away from the God who loves us and who intended that suffering for our good. Um, In other words, if you were the one who got that phone call this week, that phone call that you've been dreading, the one that introduced great suffering into your life and seems that it will for, for weeks and maybe months and years to come. <clears throat> when you received that phone call, you were transported into the epicenter of a great battleground. And on one side of the battleground is the God who loves you and allowed that suffering into your life for your good and for his glory. And on the other side of that battleground is an adversary, the devil, who wants to use that same exact suffering to turn you away from God and derail God's purposes for your life. We're called to be watchful, to resist our adversary, the devil, and God will bring us through the fight. 
Last section is one of encouragement, that God will intervene. Verses 10 and 11, let's read that together. It says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm trying really hard not to be the young preacher who all of his sermon illustrations are about babies because he has little kids at home. Um, but that's the stage I'm in, so I'm asking you to forgive one more today. Um, I told you we've got a two-month-old. Sarah and I were talking the other day about how much less stressed we are with this two-month-old than we were with our two-month-old two years ago, right? At the same stage, we were so much more stressed before. Why is that? Some of you know exactly why. Because what we've learned since then is that this season has an expiration date, right? There will be a day in which we're no longer looking at each other and saying, we're not going to make it. It's over. We're going to die. This is going to be the next 18 years of our life. It's just we're never going to sleep again. We remember with the first one that we stopped at some point having those conversations and it became okay. We turned a corner. And so even though there still are nights of two hours of sleep, we know, at least in theory, that their day is coming when this won't be happening anymore. And there's just something different about it when you know that it's going to end. And I think that's something like the message in verses 10 and 11 with regards to our suffering, that even the worst suffering that we could face in this life is only for a little while, in the grand scheme of things. Do you see that there? Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, Peter says, isn't that good news that it's only for a little while? There's some amazing nuances here in verses 10 and 11 that unfortunately we won't have time to unpack fully. Uh, just to pull out one of them, verse 10 mentions that this God has called us to eternal glory, which reminds us of back in verse 6 when he says that his plan is to exalt us. And I don't know if you've stopped to think about that and the implications of that, but think about this. Many of us Christians know and have been told for a long time that our purpose on earth is to glorify God, but have you ever stopped to reflect on the fact that God intends to glorify you? That's what verse 10 is claiming, and verse 6 claimed it as well, that God has a day in mind in which he's going to exalt us, in which he's going to glorify us. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in just a little while, to use the language of verse 10. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering we experience, it all comes with an expiration date. That sort of hope in that sort of future requires a solid faith in a God who is totally in control. In other words, he's not scrambling ever for uh, a contingency plan. He never has to turn to his plan B. He's never shaken by circumstances because even those who are trying to act directly against his circumstances or against his will unwittingly find themselves working for his purposes in the end. That's why Peter can say what he says in verse 11. To him be the dominion 
forever and ever, which to us maybe feels like just like a throwaway verse that you say at the end of a passage. But for people living in the Roman Empire, that would have been shocking to read. Because as far as all appearances went, it seemed like only Rome had that sort of dominion, the forever and ever sort of dominion. Peter says, no, even Rome will come and go, but God will remain on his throne. That's a word for you and me this week. When this week, maybe it seems like all power and dominion belongs to that demeaning boss. When it seems like all power and dominion belong to the those biting words that were said to you that just keep ringing in your head. When it seems like all power and dominion belong to cancer and that cancer is going to have the final word. This is a word for us this week. That the one to whom all power and dominion truly belongs is about to intervene. At any moment, he might. It's only going to be a little while. All of our suffering is temporary. Uh... All of our suffering is only temporary. I began by uh, talking about taking kids to get shots and holding them down through something that they can't understand. Uh, What are the shots that God is allowing to be administered in your life right now? And I don't know what they are for each and every person here, but I know this. There's a God who is in control and has allowed that suffering, those shots, so to speak, into your life for your good and for his glory. Simultaneously, there is an adversary who wants to use that same suffering to derail you from God, to cause you not to trust in him anymore, to cause you to give up the hope that you have in him. And so, because of that, that means that we are on a battleground when it comes to our suffering. Our suffering thrusts us onto a battleground, but the reality, according to this passage we just read, is that this battle, the duration of it, is really just a blip on the radar of history. Um, Maybe to illustrate that, I've got a rope up here, okay? This rope is the timeline of your life and mine. You can see it extends from one end of the stage to the other. Let's say this is your life uh, from the moment of your birth till the very end. This part right here in yellow is the portion that represents your life on earth. Just this. 70, 80 years maybe that you've been given here on this earth. It's just a tiny fraction of what your life will be. During this time, this is the time when God has allowed suffering to be introduced into your life for a purpose. And he intends for the momentary suffering, that's just this blip on the radar of your whole life, he intends for that to help make you ready, fit for eternal life with him forever where there will be no more suffering. Simultaneously, your enemy wants to use this momentary suffering to derail you from God so that you'd be separated with him for the length of eternity. When we look at it and we zoom out and we have that perspective, it becomes clear, doesn't it, that it would be foolish to throw away all of this to escape suffering just for a moment right here, the sort of suffering that comes to us as followers of Christ. I don't know how other, what other way to 
conclude this letter, this sermon, this time of talking about suffering in First Peter than by noting this, that <clears throat> Christianity is the only major world religion that teaches what Christianity teaches about suffering. We're the only major world religion that has a God who doesn't just give us advice about suffering from afar, from some lofty perch where he's detached from our suffering and handing down wisdom to us, but rather we believe in a God who stepped into our mess, took our suffering on himself by becoming a human being, putting on human flesh and all the suffering and pain and evil that uh, accompanied that. He endured that for your sake and for mine, ultimately to the point at which he went to the most excruciating sort of death possible on a Roman cross, taking your place and my place, experiencing the most unthinkable agony for you and for me that we deserved, so that instead of being separated from God for this whole timeline, you and I could be with God in perfect unity with the Trinity and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever and ever and ever. That's the distinctive of the scandalous claim that the good news of our faith makes. And that means that in our suffering, we get to joyfully identify with our Lord and Savior who humbled himself under his Father's hand to suffer for your sake and mine, having faith that that same Father whose hand he was under would one day vindicate him in the end. Will we join our Lord and Savior in that suffering? Let's pray. Lord, when we, when you allow us to suffer, we want to be a people who trust you. Even when we don't understand, even when our minds are too finite to grasp the breadth and width and depth of your purposes, we want to be people who cling to you, to the belief that you are good, that you're big, that you love us, you have what's best for us in mind and that you have your glory in mind. Lord, help us not to throw away your purposes for our suffering uh, in a a quest to avoid it or escape from it. But help us to learn what you want us to learn from our suffering and, and more than anything, help us to experience you in the midst of the suffering that you allow us to go through for your own purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. if you would. You may have noticed it was a short sermon. You may have noticed I left out the last three verses. That's because I wanted to finish out our series with uh, a zoom out time of reflection on the letter as a whole. Um, These last three verses 
or a perfect recap. It's one of those letters that actually gives us the main idea of why he wrote the letter at the very end. And here's what he says in verse 12. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, doing this. Listen to what he says the purpose of this letter is. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So think about all the themes that we've looked at along the way in this letter. Suffering. Our identity. He's called us to look back to Christ's suffering as an example. To look ahead to our glorious future that God has in store for us. He's called us to be distinct in this world now where we find ourselves exiled. He's saying now at the end, all of those themes that have come up along the way really point back to the very first theme he brought up back in chapter 1, which is the living hope that we have in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace that is ours. He says, remember back in chapter 1 when I talked about that living hope, that grace that is ours in Christ? Stand firm in that. That's how he concludes the letter and summarizes it, wraps it up. It's, it's a beautiful conclusion because it synthesizes the news and the advice that we have in this letter. Remember we've talked about that? Good news, good advice. We've said there's both in the letter, but what's critically important is to get it right about how the two fit together. And what we've said is distinctive about the Christian faith is that before it's ever good advice, it's good news, first and foremost. The Christian faith is good news before it's ever good advice. And so all the good advice he's given, sure, there's practical wisdom for how to do life in this letter, but it's not the sort of practical wisdom that says, do these things to earn God's favor. It's You have been given God's favor freely by the living hope that you have in Christ. Therefore, out of your gratitude for that, live in such a way. You've told me stories along the way this fall of how 1 Peter has done some of that work in your heart in various ways. And I've so appreciated getting to hear those stories. So we've made room for just a few minutes here for a few folks to share their stories uh, just three folks of, of, of what God's done in their hearts using First Peter this fall. So uh, three of them are going to come up and share. Uh, Karen, why don't you come up first, and then I'll come back up to close us after these three. I am currently going through the most difficult season of my life. Going through a divorce is hard. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us, Do not be afraid. Do not fear when the fiery trial comes. Pastor Tim spoke about this a few weeks ago, and he told us that we should expect trials. When those trials come, he reminded us, what does God want us from us? What does he want from us in those trials? And as I've reflected on that, I believe that God is reminding me to trust in him fully, which I thought I had been doing. But when Pastor Tim gave the example, the analogy of, if you trust your doctor, you'll take your medication, it made me realize, oh, well, I say I'm trusting God, but I'm not fully turning over my fears to him. And so um, as I reflected on that some more, I um, 
I recognize that I can turn my fears fully over to him, that through him, he is going to give me the strength to make it through. Um, All of these things have reminded me of my favorite uh, verses, my life verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And my mind has just gone completely blank standing here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Good morning, church. My name is Eddie and I graduated last May from Wheaton. I was recently convicted by 1 Peter 4, 7 that reads, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I'm someone who loves to ask people how I can be praying for them, but I struggle with the consistent and constant follow-through of actually kneeling down and praying for those people I asked. To soak, to, to soak in the Word of God so that when I pray is is not out of my heart that is commonly self-centered, but is Christ-centered, directed towards loving others as he loves them. If I truly believe that the Spirit intercedes for me when I pray, then it is the Spirit of God, the Word, my personal relationship with Jesus that I need to turn to before, during, and after I pray. One of my goals is to be in the Word and praying every day, and personally that will take a lot of self-control. The verse challenges me to cultivate the patient practice of saying no to earthly distractions and yes to heavenly realities. When I'm overly focused on myself, I'm actually not self-controlled. Self-centeredness is not self-control, as Pastor Tim pointed out today. And as a consequence of my selfishness, I am not praying as I ought to, nor am I in the Word. This verse reminds me of my primary focus and desire in life, in Christ and His kingdom, and the responsibility I have to be prioritizing a relationship with him that is full of thanksgiving and gratitude and commitment so that I am not sacrificing one of the most powerful gifts that we have been given, that is prayer. I hope this verse encourages you and it has encouraged me to be ready for the end of all things, to call upon the Spirit of God, to be self-controlled and sober-minded, and to be in the kingdom of God for the kingdom as we communicate with our Creator. First Peter 3.14 Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. In September, I started chemotherapy for breast cancer. It was scary. I had a lot of fears. God whispered, I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. I your God who's omnipotent and all-loving, I will help you. My God could deliver me from fear. My part was to trust him. After the first chemotherapy, my body reacted not to the chemo, but to the anti-nausea drug, and I ended up in the hospital. On the third day of treatment, which created much pain with no positive results, coupled with cancer fatigue from the chemo, 
I became completely depleted, physically and emotionally. At 7 p.m., I fell asleep, only to be awakened at 9 p.m. and told I was getting an MRI. The transport person tried to cheer me as she noticed my obvious state of depletion. I arrived at the MRI lab, and the technician, clearly worried, said, Much of the time you will need to follow my commands to hold your breath, letting it out when I tell you, otherwise the pictures won't be clear. This is especially important at the end of 40 minutes when we put in the dye. I nodded, but knew this was way beyond my ability in this depleted state. Lying on the gurney, I said to God, I need a song. I need it in my mind, not coming through the headphones where it will get drowned out by the banging. And as I started to move into the tunnel, I heard the hymn, He Leadeth Me. All the verses with the chorus completely filling my mind. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, where'er I go, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. I don't only hear the words, I hear it complete with piano music, and I am filled with joy and peace. Forty minutes later, the technician says, I am amazed at the wonderful pictures I got. And as the transport person, the same transport person, is taking me back to my room, she says, you're singing. And I realize it's true. The joy that God has given is overflowing. As I thank God for keeping his promise, I remember a song. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. None of us know what sort of suffering we're going to experience in the near future and the distant future. We do, that, we do know that suffering will forever be part of our experience as long as we're in exile. Peter's readers were exiled in what he called Babylon here in verse 13, speaking of the Roman Empire, and our Babylon may be the North Shore, the corporations we work for, the United States of America. This isn't our home. Even if we're made increasingly uncomfortable here in the years to come, may we stand firm in the true grace of God. And we're going to close out now just with just a short part of that song that's become the theme song for our series. If you would stand and join in just a bit of that song. Sing. Come.